0: I was given a tutorial about how not to fall off the stage, (laughs) and some of you dear people in front may want to change your position, you're in spitting distance, you know. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we bow before you and your matchless word, and rejoice in the fact that we are saved by grace and grace alone. We worship you not because we're worthy, but because you are worthy. And we come into your presence, Lord, longing to hear from you. Speak to us, your servants are listening. Open our minds that we might behold, understand, that we might embrace wonderful truth from your law. And for those people who come today, Lord, Who have never trusted you, may they see the beauty of Christ, in whose wonderful name we pray and all God's people said, amen. I have for you a picture of one of my spiritual heroes. This is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. In fact, I would say he's probably a spiritual hero of just about everyone on staff. He was the pastor for many years of uh, the Westminster Chapel um, in the heart of London. And uh, his doctorate is actually a medical doctorate. He was serving on Harley Street as a physician, uh, honorable physician. In fact, that is the group of physicians that deal with the royal family. And uh, Westminster Chapel is just maybe a quarter of a mile from Buckingham Palace. So he had quite a position, but he left that to become a preacher and gave his life to preaching the word of God. He is Welsh in background, but British through and through. Um, Again, he's my spiritual hero. In no way am I demeaning him, but this is what he usually looked like when he was preaching or took a photograph. For all I know, they said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, would you please smile, and this is what he gave them. Um, Which is why this quote always tickles me a little bit. One of my favorite quotes from Lloyd-Jones. And he said this, the church often fails to attract the world because Christians appear to be such miserable people. Now, I do want you to know that Dr. Lloyd-Jones was a very warm individual, loving, gracious. But again, it seems like a funny quote when all you see are some of these stern pictures. But I think he's right on. Instead of being famous for good works and governed by joy, many Christians are notorious for displaying a grumpy heart, being... Captivated by an unattractive spirit of discontent. And wherever they go, there's a cloud hanging over them. Instead of being filled with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, habitually, we can be negative and devoid of any sense of hope. And the world doesn't want any part of that. But when Christ lives in us by the Holy Spirit, he gives us joy. Doesn't mean that there won't be hard times. There will be, but we should be characterized more by joy. You say, Pastor, you don't know how difficult my life is. I mean, I'm getting beat up here. How can I be filled with joy? Well, I think the remedy is, the remedy is found in Romans chapter eight. There is an antidote to this sad situation, and it comes from this wonderful truth. God is, what's the rest? He is. God is for us. God is for us. Now, we're coming to the very end of Romans chapter 8, and there's a series of rhetorical questions And we're gonna look at some of them. I basically grouped them into four, but there were more than that. Rhetorical questions, but the questions don't stand alone. The questions are grounded in some amazing truth about God's grace. In other words, without the uh, introductory clause stating the wonderful, powerful grace of God, the question is confusing. And useless. But put together, oh, it's amazingly powerful. Rhetorical question is one given that has an obvious answer. And here's the first one Who can be against us? Who can be against us? And that comes out of verse 31 what then shall we say in response to these things? These things, the immediate uh, section of scripture that we looked at last week, uh, the section of scripture that talks about the Holy Spirit praying for us and, and Jesus Christ being the pattern for us and God the Father having a plan for us so that all things work together for good. With these amazing truths burning in our hearts, what shall we say in response to this? By the way, this is a familiar formula that Paul uses at least seven times. What shall we say? What shall we say to this? How are we going to respond? It's interesting in Genesis 42 verse, 20, uh, verse 36, Jacob laments, all these things are against me. But Paul says in Romans 8, 28, all these things work together for good for me. And we seem to live in one of those two spheres. Don't we always complaining, everything is against me? I found myself saying those very words when there is a series of things that go against me. Horrible things like, um, I can't find my keys. (laughs) Or I get in the car and maybe there's a flat tire. Oh no. I mean, so a series of things. And, and pretty soon I'm thinking to myself, everything is against me. Poor me. No one would listen to that, not even my wife. <laughs> so I have to get back into a big biblical frame. But Jacob was saying everything, all these circumstances around me, seem to be militating against my joy. Yet the biblical position is, if you love God, all things work together. For good, for me, exactly. I think this little phrase in verse 31, if God is for us, or simply to say God is for us, the if there is not conditional, it is simply because God is for us. God is for us. That is the summary of the gospel right there. That is maybe the most concise definition of the word grace you'll ever find. God is for me. God is for me because he loves me. God is in me because of the Holy Spirit and I'm his temple. God is with me because of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's the truth that we truly need to embrace. Now, the question by itself, who can be against me, is really pretty easy to answer. What do you mean, who can be against you? Everybody's against you, Christian. Unbelievers oppose you. The indwelling sin in your heart is trying to destroy you. The devil himself, like a roaring lion, wants to eliminate you. And this world is no friend to grace to help us on to God. I mean, everything is against us. But when you put it like this, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's a totally different answer, right? And you know what the answer is? Nobody. Nobody. I don't care who is against us, it doesn't make any difference. David says something very similar in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, when my enemies and my foes come at me, they are the ones who stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be content. Why? The Lord is my light and my salvation. So this is a truth that needs to get deep into our souls. Who can be against us? No one, because God is for us. There's a second question. What will God give us? And that comes out of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, his son, graciously give us all things? So the question is, will God graciously give us all things? And if that was all there was to the question, we might hem and haw and say, I'm not sure that God is going to graciously give me everything. But his ultimate gift precedes the question. He who spared not his own son. By the way, I'm told linguistically, the similarities between this portion of Scripture and Genesis 22 are are something that cannot be denied. For this phrase echoes the phrase we read that Abraham did not spare his own son, Isaac. Remember the story? So he takes Isaac up to the mountain. God told him to sacrifice him. And up Abraham goes. Fully feeling that he, his son would die, but that God would bring him back to life. And he spared not His own son is God's estimation of his faithfulness. And now, with the same words coming into the New Testament, God is the one who spared not his own son. By the way, that's how you preach the gospel in the book of Genesis. You see what the New Testament says about the Old Testament story, and they speak of Christ. Now, there's a difference here. Isaac was spared. Jesus was not. And praise God he wasn't, because all our salvation and all of our hope rests on the dead, risen, ascended son of God. He spared not his own son, but gave him over. Very interesting phrase, gave him over, because this is the identical phrase that is used in Romans chapter one, where it says, God gave depraved humanity over to their lusts. He gave them up. And God delivered or gave up his son to that same depravity so that he might redeem that depravity. He gave him up to be sin for us and to die on the cross in our place now in light of what God has given he argues from the greater to the lesser if God has given you this great gift will he not give you every gift below that one rhetorical question obvious answer he will give us everything and we have everything it's in Christ he has spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Will he not, with Christ also, freely, graciously, give us everything we need? Why do we have, why do we complain about our lack of sufficiency when we have Christ? And sometimes we have not because we ask not, but it's there, and it's in Christ for our benefit. That's the gracious God. The New English Bible says, with this gift, how can he fail to lavish upon us all he has to give? He will not hesitate. I mean, it's difficult to even put this kind of on the human level. I'm thinking of maybe a loved one. Let's say a father gives a kidney to his child because the child is dying and without a kidney transplant, he'll die. The father gives the kidney to his child. The child gets better and living a normal life. And, and then he begins to wonder if dad, dad will provide food for him, breakfast. Will dad provide shelter for me? Will dad go out of his way to... Protect me. All ridiculous questions in light of the fact that he gave his kidney for you. If you give someone your kidney, you're probably willing to give them about anything else. But God gave his son. And Jesus gave his life. And there's nothing he won't give to us that we need. Isn't that exciting? Here's the third question. Who will condemn us? Actually, the next two questions, who will make a charge against us, verse 33, and who will condemn us, verse 34, I'm putting together because they all happen kind of in a courtroom scene. Verse 33, who will bring any charge or an accusation against those whom God has chosen? For it's God who justifies And who then is the one who condemns? And the NIV simply says, no one. So a courtroom scene, often uh, the whole discussion of salvation is in this forensic setting, this judicial setting, where God is the judge, the prosecuting attorney is the devil, (laughs) and the defense attorney is Jesus. When I was growing up, there was a popular TV show show called Perry Mason. I hated that show. I I don't know exactly why I hated it, except it always turned out the same way. The guy would always win. He was a great defense attorney, or so they made him out to be. (laughs) And I still hate it. But (laughs) Jesus is our advocate. Our defense attorney. God's the judge. Jesus is our defense attorney. By the way, notice something very interesting in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen against God's elect? That's the name for Israel. And now Paul is transferring this title of honor to the church showing that the church is going to be loved just like Israel was loved. And they become the special people of God. There's some distinction between the two, but in the final sense, we are the people of God. We're grafted in as wild branches into that great tree. We'll see in Romans chapter 11, highly significant. Because the church is not God's plan B. Oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> they, were, they were going to kill my son, Jesus. I didn't see that coming. Well, I'll have to come up with something else. I know. Uh, I'll have some Gentiles come to faith, and we'll call them the church. No, God knew exactly and planned it all. We're in the plan of God, as it says in verse 28, 29, and 30, just like Israel. Now, the judge has already, already rendered his verdict. Verse 33, I call you justified. You have not only, all your sin is not only wiped away, but you are given a righteous status. Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Why can no one condemn us? Because of Jesus. Now, if the question is who will condemn us, we have a lot of answers. My own conscience condemns me. I have people who will point out my wrongs. And the devil is the accuser of the brethren, right? Revelation 12, verse 10, accusing them day and night. You want to know why sometimes your assurance of salvation is uh, shaken, not because of anything you've done, but you're just lying there in the middle of the night and, Some of these horrible thoughts come into your mind. You say, where in the world did that come from? Revelation 12.10, the accuser of the brethren is working hard on you. But I think there's an echo back to the book of Zechariah chapter 3. Let me just read the first three verses. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him the high priest. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man Joshua a burning stick snatched from the fire? And when you are accused by the devil, simply take him to the cross of Christ And say, devil, I know I've sinned, but look at Jesus. He died in my place. I'm a brand snatched from the burning. The Lord rebuke you, for Jesus has justified me. And I am totally clean because I'm completely in Christ. You keep doing that to the devil's accusations and he's gonna come up with another plan to trip you up because every time he comes to you with an accusation, you just go to the gospel and you become stronger and stronger and stronger in your faith. Problem is we often believe the devil and we don't believe the Lord. Who is going to condemn you? Absolutely no one. It is foolish to think that the justified by God the judge based on the work of Christ, will ever, ever be condemned. Nonsense. God's not a liar. Verse 34 is kind of the heart of it all. We're not condemned because Jesus died, died in our place. More than that, he was raised to life, showing the efficacy of his death. And God accepted him, the Father accepted him into heaven, proving he was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. And then Jesus is placed at the right hand of the father. We read this throughout the scripture, especially in the book of Hebrews, we notice, a place of authority. And not only that, he's there interceding for us, praying on our behalf. We said in chapter 26 that the devil is praying for us. Verse 34 or verse 26, now verse 34, Jesus is praying for us. The one with all authority who's been accepted by the Father, the judge, is praying for us. He continues to secure the benefits of his death on our behalf through his regular prayers. We can never, ever be condemned. And if that doesn't give you some strength and joy, I don't know what will. In fact, I can offer you nothing else. If Christ is not enough, let me be blunt, you're hopeless. And so am I. If Christ is not, but he is enough. He's more than enough. And when I embrace him, no one shall condemn me. One final rhetorical question, number four. Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? That's verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul does what he hasn't, what he hasn't done in the other rhetorical questions. We've offered up some possibilities if the first part of the equation, the introductory clause about the amazing truth of God's grace, we're not there. We have some answers to all of these questions. Now Paul even gives some answers himself. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? How about trouble or hardship or persecution? Now those three might likely go together. Trouble can come in many kinds, but It's very possible that the trouble and hardship are related to the persecution. So there is the idea that we are facing pressures from the ungodly. And, you know, we do face pressures from the ungodly, but it's going to get more intense in America. It already has. I don't think it will stop unless there's a great revival, which could happen but it's getting intense, and we're going to face the trouble, the hardship, the persecution. The next two, famine or nakedness, talk about deprivation, a lack of adequate food or clothing, and that's another part of trials and difficulties. Will any of these separate us from Christ? We think they might. The word sword or danger of the sword most probably refers to martyrdom because of the very next verse, which is a quotation from Psalm 42. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Pastor Doug read from this wonderful psalm, and it was a psalm of of great victory and confidence, and we're crushing our enemies, but in the last part of the psalm, Lord, how come we're being crushed? And then he quotes this, for your sake, Lord. Every day is a day of death, and we're considered like sheep to the slaughter, so the sword might refer to martyrdom in fact during the second century bc during the maccabean revolt the jews that died and were martyred for their faith this is the verse that was quoted over them psalm 44 and verse 22 but get this the apostle paul if tradition is accurate will die by the sword in the very city that he's writing to. And a couple decades later, the people that Paul, the the ones that he's writing to, are going to experience this, not theoretically, but in actuality. And some will think I'm suffering because God's favor is not on me. Have you ever thought that? Things are going against me because God has left me. Woe is me, punishment and suffering are a sign of his displeasure. No, they're not. His son died. And some of us may pay that ultimate price. And these individuals will endure, continue to endure suffering to the point of death. But remember this, if God is for you, no one is against you, and he'll give you everything you need, and you will never be condemned, his favor is is on you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. What if I decide to separate myself? You won't if you're in God's grace. And we're gonna see that God makes it so abundantly clear there's absolutely nothing in the universe in verse 37, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. I highlighted those five words because they come from one Greek word. And I mention it to you because you're familiar with it. The first part of the word is "hyper," where we get the English word hyper, which be, means above the norm. The last part of this Greek word is the word "nike." or Nike. And we're familiar with that because there's a famous shoe company that sells their shoes under the brand of Nike, which means in the Greek, victory. So when you put the two together, you're above the normal victor, or more than a conqueror. Now, wait a minute. Some people are going to die, verse 36. Yeah, but that does, does not define them. In fact, those who give their lives indeed have conquered in an amazing way. More than conquerors doesn't mean that my life is going to be easy. It doesn't, grace doesn't mean that all the difficulties are eliminated. It means that by God's supernatural strength through the power of the spirit within me, I can endure. And by his grace, even overcome more than conquers. Whenever I think of more than conquers, I think of this athletic illustration. It was back in 1992 that for the very first time the Olympics allowed professional basketball players to play for an Olympic gold medal. So we put together a team. Boy, did we put together a team. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, the best. And these guys went over there to compete with these sometimes very small countries. They said before the games, the 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 players from the other country were coming over for autographs and, you know, (laughs) telling them how much they appreciated them. Just before the game, you never do that. They won all eight of their games and they were never challenged. In fact, they won their games by an average of over 43 points. Chuck Daly, who was the coach, said, you know, in the Olympics, there will be other professionals playing in basketball, but there will never be another team like this. This team was majestic. And it's true, there never has been another team like that one. I mean, talk about super conquerors. And yet that's nothing like being on the side of Christ. Nothing. We are more than conquerors. Why? Through him. It's Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's the book of the Revelation. He who overcomes by the grace of God. Notice verse 38. For I am convinced, this shows progression in Paul's spiritual growth, He said earlier, I consider, and then he said, I know, and now he says, I'm convinced. You you and I need to study and understand and consider, and then we need to embrace the truth, and then we need to be embraced by the truth, totally convinced with an unshakable faith. I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, angels or demons, Now, he kind of goes beyond the normal world to the supernatural world, doesn't he? Death or life, angels or demons, the present or the future, any powers probably refers to authorities in the world. Verse 39, neither height nor depth, often referring to the movement of stars, nor anything else in all creation. That's a catch-all term. In case I miss something, let me just say, or anything you can imagine in all the universe, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Early on, it was called the love of Christ. Now it's called the love of God because Christ is God. And the love is one and the same. So it's pretty clear when you think about it. Verse 39, not in height nor depth or anything in God's creation can separate us from his amazing love. Look at these forever facts just quickly. God is for us. God has died for us. God chose us. God justified us. God prays for us, and God loves us, and nothing will ever change that. Let me encourage you to stop holding on to Christ and bask in his hold of you. Uh, What I mean by that is that too often our, our confidence is based on my hold of him And well, we should, by faith, lean upon him constantly. But let's reverse that. Our confidence is that he will never let us go. The one who died for us, the one who's praying for us, the one who works everything out for our good, he'll never let us go. And his love is always there. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee, in this alone rejoice with awe, thy mighty grasp of me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are for us. In Christ, you are with us. In the spirit, you are in us. And nothing in all creation can change that. May our confidence be found in you and you alone. In your name we pray, amen.